Hello, good evening, good day, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of the Ask Abhijit Show. I hope you're all doing very well. As you know, today is a science and technology episode. So before we, be, we begin, let's uh, see who all is with us. So I can see Harsh, Tejas, Kunal, Priyanshi, Purna, Chaitanya, RTK, Crazy Brain, Samarth, Trupti, Lokesh, Alpha, Debosman, Keshav, Omnaik, Lord Mountain, Rialkul, Anonymous, uh, Abhiraj, Brok, Abhishek, Chaitanya, Shonak, Vaishali, Abhilash, Lokhen, Ritwik, Tivan, and lots of other people. Uh, good evening, good day, all of you. Great to be back amongst you again. And with that said, let's get into the questions. So, as always, I've picked a bunch of questions and let us begin with question number one, which is a very popular question right now. So, this is by uh, Nikhil. Nikhil says, can you express your opinion on the mysterious rocket crash on the moon recently? No country is taking responsibility for it. Has it really happened or is it just a fake news viraling around? Yeah, so this uh, news has appeared in recent uh, days, in, in the past few days, that a couple of new craters have formed on the moon. And uh, it appears like there's been some kind of uh, recent crash on the moon. And it, they are saying it's a rocket crash or some kind of spacecraft that has crashed there, not a natural impact like asteroids. And apparently no country has taken responsibility for that. So that's what we hear. Let me see what the news looks like. Moon ro- moon crash. Uh, let me share my screen and see what I'm searching for. Yeah, NASA mis- baffled by mystery rocket with unknown origin. So you can see a couple of craters over there. And that's what happened. And apparently NASA is baffled. And adds, as always... So that's what they say. Apparently, there is some kind of crash and we don't know what it is. So that's the news. So what's my opinion on this? So uh, there are a couple of possibilities. First of all, maybe uh, NASA knows. Maybe the Americans know know who it is. Maybe it's their own spacecraft or their own uh, space debris. Maybe it's China. Maybe it's Russia. Maybe it's some other country. Uh, Typically, what happens is that All of these spacecraft that are launched into space are tracked, especially by the Americans and I'm sure by other countries as well. So it is very unlikely that they don't know who it is that's responsible for this crash in case it is uh, uh, space debris or or a spacecraft. So either they know and they're not revealing it or something is fishy. (laughs) Maybe it's aliens. So there's always that possibility that maybe there is some alien involvement in this crash so uh to to be to be to to be to be serious i don't think it is the case that the, the americans don't know what it is most likely they know who is behind this and maybe they don't want to re- reveal it for whatever reason so yeah so that's where we are it is still a mystery and i expect that over time it will be revealed and cleared up Okay, Swarup Vaidya says, last year a motor motor neuron diseased patient became the first person to tweet a message using only his brain. 
This was made possible by a microchip that was implanted into the brain. The chip allows patients to carry out computer tasks just using their minds. Do you think this will be as common as having a mobile in the near future when the price of the chip at the surgery will be affordable? I think eventually this could become quite common. Uh, initially, it will be used for people who are quadriplegics and people who are paralyzed, people who are who have uh, the, the so-called locked-in syndrome, which means that they are fully conscious, but they are locked inside. Their body is completely unresponsive and they are unable to control the body for whatever reason, using their mind. So the body appears like it's in the vegetative state, but the person inside is fully conscious and aware of what's happening. And you can figure this out using brain scans and all that, you know, when you ask a question, the brain responds immediately to that, which shows a response to external stimulus, which means the person is conscious to some extent. And when you implant these chips, then you can actually possibly communicate with the person. So uh, this technology is currently uh, a work in progress. But like you say, like you said here, uh, this has happened. Uh, I even heard that some per that a person with a brain implant, a chip implanted in the brain, was able to surf the internet and order order a coke or a pizza or something like that, you know, or or or, or ask the computer to play sir, the, their favorite music. So that sort of thing is currently uh, definitely possible with the technology that we have today. It will eventually become more common. It will first be used for patients who suffer from these problems, but eventually it will be implanted in fully functional human beings to enhance their abilities. So this is called transhumanism. And that's what Elon Musk is doing with his uh, Neuralink project, that company, which aims to implant microchips in the brains of perfectly healthy and normal human beings. And that will give them uh, certain capabilities that we typically don't have, right? So maybe you'll be able to surf the internet right away without uh, needing your fingers to type or whatever. You'll be able to directly issue commands to the to your Wi-Fi or whatever <laughs> using your brain, using your mind, using your thoughts. And you may be able to uh, eventually, instead of using screens, you may be able to visualize data and, and images right in, in your brain using this technology. So that could happen. So I think initially there's going to be some... Uh, skepticism about this kind of technology because people will be wondering whether this sort of implant could cause any brain damage or not or whether it's going to be used to control your mind you know there's going to be all kinds of uh, fears and uh, definitely initially there will be hesitancy and resistance but as more and more people over time adopt this technology it will become more and more common and then eventually there will be a tipping point when everybody wants it but of course like I've said before in the past, there are potential problems. And uh, so that's something that people need to keep in mind. So, yeah, I think eventually it will become quite common, just like having mobiles. I mean, it took a, it took a long time for mobiles to become uh, ubiquitous. The technology was first introduced in the 1990s, if I'm not mistaken, by Vodafone in England. And it took at least a decade before it became like reasonably prevalent. And uh, it's on the, only the 21st century that it totally took off uh, in other countries, especially in India, etc. So it takes time, but I think eventually uh, this could become quite common. Okay, Lakshay says, is human cloning possible? If yes, then why are scientists not allowed to do the, do, to work towards it? 
except in uh, cases when they are doing something unethical we might enhance human capability and enhance this eliminate diseases through it so what is cloning cloning is so cloning is certainly possible uh, the first organism or or large scale organism to be cloned was dolly the sheep which is like i think in the 1990s and uh, many other species and other animals have been cloned in subsequent years i think the technology is quite advanced and i'm sure it is certainly possible to clone uh, human beings as well so what is cloning cloning is you take a person's dna and you implant it into a new fertilized egg or whatever and that creates a complete new human being with the exact same dna so that is what cloning is whether it's a human being or or a butterfly or whatever other species but that is the principle behind cloning i am sure it is certainly possible to clone human beings by now i think uh, such experiments may even have been undertaken in countries like china they have been cloning other animals like uh, monkeys etc yeah they have been doing that uh but that certainly does raise ethical questions is it ethical to do this is it ethical to create designer human beings for whatever purpose that you have for whatever whatever agenda you're trying to fulfill so that's always a question so the question is always about ethics when it comes to experimentation on human beings any kind of experimentation actually it should it should extend to other species also because i mean it could cause pain and suffering you know uh, experimentation could cause pain suffering etc on to other species to other animals and that's a, something that happens animal experimentation that that's a routine practice in in well industries like uh, cosmetics and all that so human cloning i believe is definitely 100% possi- person possible uh what would be the uh need to clone somebody why would you want to clo- clone someone so that's the question it is certainly possible to do it but why would you want to do it i mean it would have some agenda or some purpose behind it and is it ethical to to create new human beings to serve some agenda or to fulfill some purpose that is a big question and i would say it's it's not ethical to to create human beings for for a certain purpose human beings should have a purpose that is their own they should not be owned by somebody they should not be created by somebody and they should not be designed by somebody and and that person will de- decide what sort of genetics this new human being will have It should not work like that so that's the ethical uh, concern that's always there and that's why cloning human experimentation is uh, is illegal in most most countries right uh so yeah that's the reason and when you speak about enhancing various capabilities and eliminating diseases that's about gene editing that's about those technologies that that emerge out of uh, something like crispr so there is gene editing there is creating genetically modified organisms that's been done in agriculture and other things and once again it does raise ethical questions because you can today you do have the ability to edit the human genome using crispr but do we know what's going to be the long term effect of that on that individual and in future generations we don't quite know we don't understand the genome fully we understand about 4% of the genome and that too not very well about 95 or 96% of the genome is completely 
dark. They call it the dark matter of the DNA. And if you understand so little of the human genome, is it wise to tinker with it without understanding how this, whatever you're doing is going to affect the other part of, parts of the genome? So, you know, they, this can be a slippery slope. It can cause dangerous, unintended, unforeseen effects. And that's why one has to be very careful while doing this. And for this reason, for, for, for all of these reasons, uh, human experimentation and cloning and genetic uh, whatever, all of that is currently banned in most countries. I expect in some places it may, some, some experiments may be ongoing secretly. But yeah, there's no evidence of that. So that's where we are. Okay, Erickson says, there are claims by people who worked in Area 51 like Bob Lazar that the US has access to extraterrestrial technology. He mentions a gravity generation based spacecraft and are trying to figure it out. Is it possible that the US government has technology that's vastly more advanced than what we use in terms of energy generation, space travel and military technology? If yes, which other governments can have access to such, te such technology? Let me take the second question first. Is it possible that the US government has access to technology that we don't quite know about? Yes, of course. They have been developing all kinds of technologies. And all of this new technology that's being developed for military purposes, it's completely classified. It's top secret. It's not revealed to the public for decades. So there are certain aircraft that were whose existence was revealed uh, for instance, the space, the stealth aircraft, its existence was was revealed. The the Spirit Bomber B one, I think it is, or B two, whatever, which, whichever one it is, its existence was revealed at the time around the time of the first Gulf War, ninety one, is it nineteen ninety one? But that aircraft had been around, and it had been in use for at least a decade before that. Similarly, the SR seventy one Blackbird, that's another aircraft that, that has been retired now, that too was kept under wraps for a very long time. So typically these technologies, which are the at the cutting edge of what's possible, these are kept under wraps for decades. There are, I can guarantee this, there are technologies in use right now in the US military that whose existence will not be revealed for the next two, three, four decades. It's quite possible. Yeah, and it's not just the U.S. Other countries as well will be working on such technologies, and they obviously will want to keep it under wraps because they don't want other nations to become aware of what their military capabilities are, and that's why deception and stealth is is paramount in military matters in geopolitics and all that. So yeah, it is certainly possible that the U.S. government has very advanced technology that we are not aware of and which is which will not be revealed for decades to come and similarly for russia for china for india as well possibly it's quite possible so one can only speculate about this because we don't have information this information is not going to be made available in the public domain now about the first question about area 51 bob lazar and uh, extraterrestrial technology i am extraordinarily skeptical about this i i am quite certain that we are not the only uh, planet on which life exists. I'm certain there, there are other planets, other, st other star systems, other galaxies, etc., where life, intelligent life exists. I, I would, I imagine, I, 
I am convinced that intelligent life could be quite common in our universe. It's just that we haven't found it. Maybe we are too primitive to be able to detect evidence of intelligent life. Okay, whatever it is, that is a different story. So I am convinced, I am very, very sure that intelligent life does exist in other places as well, in other, other star systems. But the likelihood of such intelligent life having visited the Earth is very remote. It's very unlikely. It's not zero. The probability is not zero, but it's close to zero. Now, let's assume for a second that aliens did visit the Earth and they have established contact with human beings. Why is it that they would only contact the United States? Why? For what reason? And why are UFOs only visible in, in the US night sky or day sky? Why are there no... Uh, Reports of UFOs in India or Sri Lanka. Yeah, why Why not? Why not in Denmark? Why not in the Philippines? <laughs> why not in Kenya? Why is it always the United States where you get these UFO sightings? Is, it, is there something really special about the people who, li who live in the US? So that's one thing that doesn't make any sense. If aliens have established contact with humans and they do visit the, the earth, then why don't other nations witness UFOs? Right? And why have they, if they have provided their technology to uh, to humans, why is it only to the US government? <laughs> so that's that sounds like a Hollywood kind of story, you know? So that's why I'm very skeptical about this. Uh, it's possible that aliens may may be around. Yeah, but then if it is so, then we should all be able to see that. Or at least there should be reports, reliable reports in other countries as well. So because of all these reasons, I am very skeptical about this Area 51 story, this Bob Lazar story. I'm sure, I mean, I, I, I haven't seen his interviews and I have not read his whatever he may have written. So I, I can't really comment about that, about his claims, whatever they may be. But I am very skeptical about this. I believe that uh, I am reasonably certain that aliens, I mean, intelligent aliens exist in other other planets, other star systems, and so on. But I am very skeptical about these claims that they have visited us and they are in they are working hand in glove with the U.S. government. They have provided their t alien technology only to the Americans and nobody to, and to nobody else because Americans are somehow special and exceptional. What nonsense! Aliens don't care about any of that. So that's how it is and that's why I am skeptical about this matter. Akash says, are the ideas of exploring black holes, traveling at the speed of light, time machines and warp drive and other, other such concepts valueless or do they have any real utility, even if as a thought experiment? Usually the non-professionals seem really interested in these rather than real scientists. All of these uh, concepts and ideas are real ideas. They make sense from the perspective of physics. Uh, traveling at the, at the speed of light is not possible. We know that. I mean, the equations tell us. And until we have new equations that prove the other one, the existing ones wrong, we have to under we have to agree that the best equations, the best theories that we have, are the valid theories as of today. In the future, we will have better theories. And maybe the, in the future, in the 22nd century, perhaps, we'll have a theory which says that, yeah, you can travel at the speed of light. But as of today, the best theory that we have 
is general relativity, which says it's impossible to travel at the speed of light. So these ideas, what they do is that they take us forward. What if we could travel at the speed of light? So that makes us explore physics in greater depth. Black holes were a fantasy for a very long time until, well, we were able to detect certain astrophysical objects that look very much like black holes. We still don't have 100% confirmation that these are black holes with singularities within and all that. But they look very much like black holes. Uh, Time machines, well, even time travel is theoretically possible. There are certain uh, solutions of the Einstein equations, field equations, which would uh, actually allow allow you to, to go back in time. There are multiple scenarios in which this would be possible. This could be possible, which is something I went into in the, in the previous uh, science episode. Warp drives, drives again could be possible. Once again, there are certain solutions of the Einstein field equations that uh, could make uh, traveling within a bubble of space-time, which itself is traveling faster than the speed of light. Even that could be possible. Yeah, so many of these things are actually theoretically within the realms of possibility. As of, of course, as of today, we don't have the technology. We don't have anything remotely close to the, to the technology that we would need to make them possible. But yes, it is something that uh, does drive uh, physics forward. And uh, thought experiments are at the core of theoretical physics. Right? So it these are very important. These are important uh, questions, important concepts, important ideas, important avenues to explore. I agree that non-professionals seem more interested in this than real scientists. When you're a scientist, you have to uh, exhibit a certain uh, amount of skepticism. And uh, you you have to show that you have your feet firmly on the ground and you're not going off on wild goose chases, chases. And very often when you are a professional physicist, you are actually trying to solve smaller problems rather than solve the biggest problems of the, them all. Because it is the smaller problems that eventually lead you towards the bigger problems. So it appears, especially to outsiders, especially to uh, non-professionals, like the professional scientists, physicists are not so interested in these matters, which is not quite the case. We are all interested in this, but uh, we we tend to keep the uh, the apparent visual level of ex- excitement a little bit toned down. That's what it is. And of course, we haven't made any massive breakthroughs in these matters. So as of today, we still don't have a viable technology which would allow us to create a warp drive or a time machine or, or go to... A, allow us to go back in time and certainly not traveling at the speed of light but of course we have things that come close for instance we have the breakthrough starshot project that in the next 10 to 20 years could launch a a bunch of spacecraft micro spacecraft towards our nearest star at 20 or 30 percent the speed of light which is a massive massive uh, quantum leap in terms of capabilities you know we would need certain technologies to be developed uh, Uh, such as uh, phased lasers and all that, you know, but it's certainly within the realms of possibility in the near term. So I think from my perspective, at least all of these ideas are fascinating. They are very exciting. And that is something that should and is being pursued. And the actual utility of these ideas is that it draws in young minds, right? That's what really evokes curiosity and fascination and the, and excitement 
as a youngster, as a 12-year-old, as a 15-year-old, you want to be fascinated by something. And that's what makes you want to be a scientist, right? And it is these ideas like black holes and time machines and uh, warp drives and uh, traveling close to the speed of light, exploring other star systems, maybe creating a gravitational wave spectroscope or whatever, you know, that's what fascinates you and that's what makes you want to enter the field and make a genuine contribution, big contribution. I want to solve the big problems, right? So that's great. So I think all of these things have genuine real utility. Of course, even if we solve certain of the, some of these problems, the actual uh, real world utility could come much later. For instance, when Einstein came up with the theory of relativity, uh, general relativity, 1915, it took 100 years for us to actually discover uh, gravitational waves. And yet, and even today, we don't have any technology that uses gravitational waves. Uh, the only technology that uses uh, general relativity as far as I can as, I, as far as I can remember, is GPS. So in for, for, for GPS to work, you need uh, to incorporate the effects of general relativity. Otherwise, it doesn't work. It won't be accurate. So it takes time. Theoretical physics is at the cutting edge, at the bleeding edge of uh, research in physics. And it's typically decades or even centuries ahead of what the experimentalists are at. So the applications take a long time to become apparent, but it's without the uh, work that's that's done by theoretical physicists, none of the applications are possible. So that's how it is. So it has its utility. Swapnil says, can you differentiate between the two theories of the origin of life, primordial soup and deep sea vents? Because they both seem similar. So, uh, the primordial soup theory is that in the very early uh, days of the earth, when you had the newly formed earth, which was formed out of the chaos of the infant of the infancy of the solar system, the, the proto-solar disk and all that. So in the very early earth, you had what is called the primal soup, which is all these hot, very hot swirling gases. Uh, you had uh, carbon dioxide, you had a, a whole mixture of gases. Uh, you would have methane, ammonia, water vapor, and, and many other things. The temperatures were very high. There was a lot of lightning and all that. And it is out of this primordial soup that life emerged somehow. Right. So that is the that's the uh, experiment we spoke about last week. I don't recall the name of the experiment. Uray Teller or something like that. So that was an experiment that sought to recreate the conditions of the very early Earth in a test tube kind of apparatus, you know, in a, in a lab apparatus. And they were able to show that if you create the same kind of environment inside the apparatus, you can uh, very, very quickly you find the emergence of amino acids and all that. So that is the primordial soup theory that it is out of such conditions in the very early Earth that life emerged. So that's one theory. The other theory, like you mentioned, is deep sea vents. So what are deep sea vents? So we know that the earth has a crust. Below the crust, there is the mantle. Below that, there is the magma layer. The magma layer is the molten rock. 
and below the magma layer at the core of the earth you have this very solid uh, core which is mostly metallic right nickel iron all that so that's the that's the cross section of the earth let's let's take a look at what it looks like one second let me um, share my screen so that you get an idea of what i'm talking about the earth structure if it ever loads okay so what you have is the crust the upper crust the lower crust the outer core and the core and of course there is the magma layer the mantle inner core all that so this is what the cross section of the earth looks like now we have what's known as plate tectonics uh, which says the which is a phenomenon in which uh, the crust of the earth moves because of the convection of the magma layer below and from time to time there there are fractures and fissures in the crust of the earth and the magma comes out and that's what causes volcanism and things like that now there are lots of underwater volcanoes undersea volcanoes and uh, you see the same kind of volcanic activity under the ocean these are called deep sea vents so let me show you what deep sea vents look like right so if you go deep under the surface of the ocean on the on the to the bottom of the ocean you have these deep sea vents which are essentially uh, uh, manifestations of volcanic activity and uh, so what happens in these deep sea vents is that the temperatures are very very high like typically boiling point of water and you have all these gases that come out of the uh, surface of the uh, of the ocean floor so you have sulfur you have methane and various other volcanic gases so all of this creates a very rich environment rich in chemicals very hot and surprisingly you have all this life that thrives over there and this is the kind of life that doesn't need sunlight because it gets energy from the heated water and all the chemicals so you have these uh, tube worms etc that live in these that thrive in these deep sea vents so it's a very specialized kind of life that lives there under the very high pressure of the of the ocean so that is another theory like you say of the origin of life that maybe life originated in deep sea vents and then moved upwards and spread to other parts of the of the planet so these are the two uh, theories that you're speaking about and it's it's possible both are uh, both are viable theories good theories that could possibly explain the uh, abiogenesis the origin of life out of chemicals with these uh, with these energy sources etc available so they, that's what the two, two theories are and they are not quite similar of course the the they are similar in some ways and dissimilar in some ways so that's what these two theories are and we still don't know how life emerged we still don't have the exact uh, the exact answer the exact idea and we of definitely don't know where dna came from how does a molecule as complex as dna emerge because dna is what is at the foundation of all life on our planet whether it is we human beings whether it is dogs cats wolves elephants leopards butterflies insects fish microorganisms viruses bacteria whatever it is every single living being every single living cell 
has DNA in it. Of course, in the human body, red blood cells don't have DNA. But apart from that, right? So, so yeah, so we don't have the answers as of today. Karun says, our ancestors' memory is locked in our DNA question mark. So you're asking whether our ancestors' memories are locked in our DNA. Can we inherit our ancestors' memories by gene memory unlocking technique? Various startups are working on this. What will happen if it is really possible? Is it possible that some of our ancestors' memories could be locked up in our DNA? It's possible. Possibly, yeah. It's not impossible. But we don't quite know what it is. What we do know is that we understand only about 4 or 5% of our genome. About 95% of it is completely unknown to us. We don't know what it does. It doesn't seem to code for any proteins. And some people have called it junk DNA. But, you know, nature is parsimonious. Nature doesn't indulge in wastage. Why would it pass on so much junk from generation to generation over hundreds of thousands of years? Doesn't make any sense. That DNA needs to have some purpose. It has to have some purpose. So we don't know what it is. Does it mean there are there are memories encoded in that? We don't know. We don't quite remember what our ancestors uh, experienced, right? So, uh, so I personally don't know. Of course, we do find articles written about this, that there could be certain memories locked up, encoded in our DNA, memories of uh, our ancestors' experiences or whatever. And maybe one could unlock that using certain techniques. So yes, there is research that's being done in this field. But as of today, nobody has any definitive evidence that this is indeed the case. So nobody has been able to, say, unlock a certain portion of a, a certain person's genome and say that, you know, these are the memories that were stored in here. No, that's not happened yet. But people are researching this. It's being taken seriously. And maybe there is something to it. So this is a work in progress. It's a very interesting and interesting field for sure. <clears throat> interesting uh, question and idea. And uh, whether we find memories or not, we don't know. But it will certainly uh, take us forward in understanding what the DNA is, what our genome is like. 95% is unknown. We don't know what it does. We don't know what it codes for. We don't know what its purpose is. Hopefully, this sort of research will unlock some of that at least. At least we'll be able to shed some fresh light, some new light on, on our genome. So that's where we are. That's what's happening right now. Very interesting field. Biology, DNA, genetics, all that. So yeah, let's see how it goes. Piyush says, how omnipotent is gravitation? Do we apply, do we both apply gravitation force even when we are far apart, which is almost negligible? Okay, I'm able to understand the first part of the question. How omnipotent is gravitation? Gravitation is all omnipotent. So I am sitting here in my study in this room. Yeah. I am right now feeling the effects of the gravitation of the planet, of the Earth, which is right straight down. That's where the force is coming from. But I'm also feeling, to some extent, the gravitational effect of the moon, wherever it is. I don't know where it is right now, but I'm feeling it. I'm also feeling the gravitational effect of the sun, of the other planets. However little it is, but it's there. And I'm also 
and so are you we are all also feeling the gravity of the other stars that are out there in our galaxy we are feeling the gravitational effect of the black hole at the center of our galaxy sagittarius a and we are feeling the gravitational effects of every other star planet galaxy dust particle etc that exists throughout the universe gravity is a long range force it's it's uh, it, it's an its range is infinite right so yes we f- gravitation is omnipotent it's everywhere it's the weakest force but it's the uh, from the newtonian perspective it's a one upon r force so it never goes to zero you always feel a certain component of uh, of gravitation of every single particle and ma- massive object that exists in the, in the universe right so what we feel here is the resultant of all of these different components and all, all of the gravitation that you feel from other all the other objects that exist in the universe so yes that's that's what it is okay the question is i recently read i recently read an american scientist report which says that the extreme atmospheric pressure of neptune uranus saturn etc can crystallize carbon atoms and turn them into diamonds is it true how can it happen so carbon comes in in a variety of forms let me show you what the forms are like carbon allotropes let's see so these are the various allotropes of carbon let's take a look at this so diamond graphite whatever this is c60 buckminster fullerene c540 c70 amorphous carbon single walled carbon nanotubes <clears throat> and these various shapes right so carbon exists in all of these different forms which are called allotropes uh so how does diamond typically form diamond typically forms when you when you take a lump of carbon let's say a lump of coal and you exert an enormous amount of pressure on it and when that happens the carbon takes the for, uh, for the form of diamond that's what happens so diamond is just carbon it's another form of coal you could say and it's formed in the interior of the planet where the uh, pressures are very high now if you have a bun- a lump of carbon that exists that you throw let's say you take a lump of coal a big lump of coal you throw it at jupiter jupiter is an enormous planet we know that huge amount of uh, mass and it is a gaseous planet it doesn't have a surface so you throw a lump of carbon at this planet it's going to sink it's going to go down deeper and deeper into the planet and as it goes deeper into the interior of the planet it's going to be it's going to uh it's going to experience atmospheric pressure that keeps rising as it goes as it goes deeper towards the center and eventually the atmospheric pressure is going to be so high that this lump of coal or carbon is going to be squeezed and it's going to turn into diamond yeah so that's typically something that would happen inside a massive planet like jupiter or saturn possibly even uranus or neptune which are also gas giants right so it is possible that over time we know carbon is is quite common in the solar system many of the asteroids have a lot of carbon on them we know that so and we also know that asteroids go keep on hitting planets like jupiter saturn etc from time to time asteroids comets etc 
right so the the solar system is a very is a very old system uh, how old is it three and a half billion years old four and a half i'm not sure whatever like that whatever it is it is billions of years old and over these billions billions of years a planet like jupiter or saturn would have absorbed impacts from uncountable numbers of asteroids and comets and the carbon in these objects would have sunk towards the center of the planet jupiter and it would have crystallized into into diamond so it is quite likely that at the core of these gaseous planets the gas giants like jupiter saturn uranus neptune etc it is quite likely that at the core you would have a massive amount of diamond you may even have a fully diamond core possibly possibly it's possible so that's how it happens because of the enormous atmospheric pressure that squeezes carbon into its diamond allotrope so it is quite likely that there is an enormous amount of diamond near the core or at the core of jupiter saturn uranus and neptune within our own solar system quite likely isn't that interesting Okay, the next question is by Neil Mehta. In one of your previous videos, you mentioned about Grigory Perelman. And you called him a one in a billion kind of mathematician. But why is there little to no information about him on the internet? Not even a single interview. Could you tell more about him and his solution of the Poincaré conjecture? So the Poincaré conjecture, I will not go into what it is. It's a very old problem. It was there. It, it was... Uh, uh, around for more than a century and lots of mathematicians tried to solve it and they all failed and eventually this uh, gentleman Grigory Perelman was able to solve it now why are there no interviews about him and no information because he's a very shy reclusive private kind of person he does not give interviews these that's the kind of person he is there have been ma many personalities like that for instance in cricket you had this guy called Kirtley Ambrose the West Indies fast bowler, who would never give interviews to anyone. Nowadays, of late, he has changed and he's become more social, but for the longest time, he was like that. So many, many people are like that. Uh, so Grigory Perelman is a very, very private person, very shy person, reclusive person. He doesn't want fame. He, he refused to accept the Fields Medal, which is the greatest uh, honor a mathematician can have. Uh, it's even higher than the Nobel Prize, right? The Nobel Prize is given every year in physics and various other fields, right? The Fields Medal is given out once in four years, only to people under 40. So that's an enormous honor. And, he, and it comes with a price tag, a price tag of a million dollars, I think. And he refused that. So he doesn't want any fame or recognition. He says that the only recognition I want is that the solution that I gave is correct. And that's that's enough for me. That's the kind of person he is. And of course, he was very hurt by the attempts of certain mathematicians to steal his proof. Uh, let me show you what that is. Uh, one second. So let us go back to Google. There is the thing. All right. So there is this article, very famous article in the New Yorker magazine which is called Manifold Destiny, the clash over the Poincaré conjecture, a legendary problem and the battle over who solved it. 
and the one of the authors is Sylvia Nasser, who also is the author of this very famous book called A Beautiful Mind. So this cartoon, the caption says, is that uh, Grigory Perelman on the right says, if the proof is correct, then no other recognition is needed. But Xing Tung Yao isn't so sure. So this Chinese origin mathematician, Xing Tung Yao, essentially attempted to steal the credit from Grigory Perelman. What Perelman did is that he solved the problem. So, so uh, this is the name of the article, Manifold Destiny. I, if you are interested, I would recommend you read it. It's a very interesting article. It came out in 2006. So what happened is that this guy, Perelman, he proved the Poincaré conjecture and he wrote up a paper with detailing the entire proof and he did not submit it to a peer-reviewed journal. He simply placed it on a preprint archive, on the preprint archive, archive.org, arxiv.org, and it just sat there. And eventually people realized that this guy has solved the Poincaré conjecture. So this Chinese guy, what's his name? What's his name? Uh, Xing, Xing Tung Yao. He's, he's also a very famous mathematician. I, I believe he has also been awarded the Fields, Fields Medal. So Xing Tung Yao, what he did is that he picked up the proof and he, he wrote a new paper along with a couple of students of his. Or maybe they wrote the paper, they were the primary authors or whatever, in which they expanded upon the proof, elaborated upon the proof and said that this is the crowning achievement. And they kind of tried to take credit for giving the full proof of the Poincaré conjecture. That's the kind of thing that happened. Eventually, an Indian mathematician or student, graduate student, picked up the similarities between the two papers. And he pointed out that the Chinese guys had essentially plagiarized Perelman's paper. And then there were retractions and they said that we have, we are not, and they changed the some of the terminology and they said they, they withdrew the term crowning achievement and all that. And eventually they were essentially shamed. That's what happened. But it doesn't seem to have done the, the reputation of Shingitang Yao too much of harm. That's how it is. So because of this experience, uh, Perelma kind of withdrew into a shell and I think he just quit mathematics. He quit doing mathematics after that. And I'm not sure what he's up to these days, but uh, yeah, he's not. Cle he's clearly not active in, in mathematics anymore. So that's how it is. He's that kind of that kind of person, a very shy, reclusive kind of person, very private person. And he was deeply hurt by all of this controversy and the attempts to steal the credit from him. And that's why he is now withdrawn from the field and he doesn't give interviews. So I, if you are interested, I would recommend you read that uh, this this uh, article, Manifold Destiny, very interesting uh, piece of mathematical history. Swapnil says, hypothetically speaking, if we raised the level of atmospheric oxygen in the environment, would it be better or worse for the human species? During the Carboniferous period, there used to be giant insects as the atmospheric oxygen content used to be at 35%, but humans were not evolved yet. Uh, it is extremely dangerous to tinker with the uh, environment in any manner. Right now, the percentage of oxygen in the atmosphere is about 20-21%, I believe. Yeah, 
if you raise it by 14%, it could have catastrophic consequences for the environment. There was a time when our planet had a very different atmospheric composition. There was almost no oxygen. And we had life on the planet. Then a certain species of bacteria started proliferating in the oceans of the world. I believe these were called cyanobacteria. And they, uh, so the, what these bacteria would do is that their waste product, product was oxygen. They would excrete oxygen into the atmosphere as a waste product. And they proliferated so much in the oceans of the world that they ended up uh, giving out so much oxygen that the entire composition of the atmosphere was changed. And oxygen became one of the primary components of the atmosphere. This is called the Great Oxygenation Event or the Great Oxygenation Catastrophe. Because oxygen was a poison to all other species to most other species on the planet at the time. And it caused a mass extinction. And most of the species on the planet at that time, at that time died out because of this enormous amount of oxygen that suddenly came into the atmosphere. So oxygen was a poison at the time. Even today, we can tolerate about 21% oxygen, oxygen in the atmosphere. The rest of it, about seven, more than 70%, is nitrogen almost 79%. So we are accustomed, we are used, we have evolved in such a manner that we are used to breathing about 78-79% nitrogen and 20-21% oxygen. Right? And nitrogen is something that we don't use, but that's how it is. Now, if we were to have a more oxygen-rich atmosphere, we don't quite know what the uh, consequences of that could be. There is something called oxygen poisoning when you breathe in too much oxygen, when people are given pure oxygen to breathe, I think it, it can have harmful effects to the, to the human physiology. And I'm sure it would be harmful to other species as well if you would raise the uh, level of the oxygen. So the entire environment the, is an ecosystem. It's in a very delicate balance. And uh, all of the species on the planet have evolved over millions of years in response to this to this balance of various gases and all that in the atmosphere and the kind of temperature that we have, you change any of these parameters, it's going to cause a large-scale effects. And this could be very harmful effects. You could end up causing a mass extinction if you pump out so much additional oxygen into the atmosphere. So it's not a good idea. You cannot play God and start tinkering with the composition of the atmosphere and the planet and all that. It's a very, very, very bad idea. Right? So that's what I have to say. Soham says, I'm considering taking computer science engineering for college, but recently I heard that GPT-3 and VS Code Assistant AI can predict code for a given problem and automatically generate possible algorithms, taking into consideration that AI will advance in the next 5-10 to 10 years. Is my future career option, software development engineering, in danger of being of getting replaced by an AI and artificial intelligence? So yes, we have reached the stage where AI can write code. When we have reached the stage where AI can improve upon its own code and get better iteratively. We have reached there. So 
the question is this when we write code when we create algorithms when we create new software products and packages we are essentially trying to solve certain problems that's what all the softwares do that's what all the algorithms do we are trying to solve problems we are trying to improve upon uh, whatever we have right that's what software development engineering is all about it's about solving real world problems and how do we know there are problems because we have eyes ears and we can see what what the world is like now when it comes to an ai an ai does not have access to all of this data what's out there in the world do we have potholes on the street do people need pizza delivery in 20 minutes or 10 minutes ai doesn't know any of these things ai can only sense certain things as long as they are given that uh, it is given that much sensory input and then whatever it it perceives as problems it tries to solve that so ais have reached the stage where they can solve what they perceive as problems and improve upon their own code and get better on their own volition but yet ai is not capable of as of today understanding what problems human fa- human beings face and what solutions we human beings need right it's not at, th- at that stage and i don't i don't imagine that ai will reach there in the next 10 20 30 years uh if ai is to solve problems it needs inputs it needs data as to what the world is like now ai doesn't have visual data it doesn't have sensory inputs the way we have what are our senses we have eyes so we see the world and then we can see the problems we can hear things which adds to this data that we have so all of these senses the five senses they tell us what the world is like and what the problems are and there are very human problems that we face ai doesn't have eyes and ears so ai doesn't really know what the world is like it's like a bunch of bacteria sitting in a petri dish wondering what's out there but they don't have the senses to tell them that there's a human being looking at them right now under a microscope so similarly ai is handicapped in a variety of ways and ai doesn't have access to all of this information and that's why ai cannot solve the problems that we face maybe in 20 30 40 years we may be able to have ais that have access to such things in which case we are doomed essentially <laughs> so that's where we are i don't think that uh, your future career option is in danger of getting replaced by ai ai in the next 10 or 20 years that's my personal assessment so i think your career is thus far safe but yeah we are going towards that in that direction the ais are learning on their own now and they can actually improve upon themselves and, and write their own code and possibly they could write programs that do other things as well but they are still not at the stage where they can actually solve problems that people face and society faces Akash says we can explain the world without the need of a creator. Many scientists claim this to support their argument of why they are an atheist. Doesn't this contradict the fact that we know nothing about the universe considering the vast amount of mysteries and paradoxes that emerge out of the study of physics? Does being a scientist necessitate being an atheist? So in science it's about uh, the most parsimonious explanations of various things. and it's all about uh, the physical universe and observational data and empir- empirical data it's about the observable universe it's about the physical world and material world and physical phenomena uh, 
so god is something that is not measurable quantifiable verifiable falsifiable and that's why god doesn't exist in science the concept of god is unscientific and when i say unscientific it doesn't mean it's bad or evil or primitive or regressive it it means it falls outside of the realm of science that's all it is so yeah the aim of science is to explain the world through purely physical phenomena that's all it is that's the aim of science the aim of philosophy is, to, is something quite different the aim of theology or or religion or spirituality is entirely different these things cannot mix philosophy is science is a subset of philosophy spirituality i don't know what it is we don't even have a def- proper definition of what that is and so on uh so yeah we know next to nothing about the universe it doesn't mean that we need to bring in supernatural or or unphysical phenomena into the realm of science it doesn't mean that we have an enormous amount of mysteries 95% of the universe is dark right and we don't know what it is so yeah we we do have we do face that problem but we cannot the moment we we start mixing things from outside into science it's no longer science that's how it is so science is completely separate from things like religion and god and ethics and philosophy it doesn't mean that scientists have to be atheists there are plenty of scientists who are very very much not atheists i can give you some very good examples uh, george lemaitre one of the major uh, the the guy who came up uh, with the he's one of the major uh, figures in cosmology he was a catholic priest yeah he came up i think with the expansion of the universe if i'm not mistaken and that goes against all all tenets of catholicism that's an example closer to home we had uh, shrinivas ramanujan one of the greatest mathematicians of all time he was profoundly religious right um what about uh, what's his name ecg sudarshan ekkomal chandi george sudarshan he was born into a christian family in india later he became a hindu and he lived and died as a hindu he is one of the greatest physicists of all time he should have give, he should have won three nobel prizes he he was awarded none which is all politics he was very much a hindu he was very much a believer in in god or, or whatever it is right that he believed in he was religious so you don't have to be an atheist to be a scientist absolutely not but when you do science you don't bring in you don't mix up things that don't don't belong in science that's all i'm saying so you don't have to be an atheist to be a scientist and it's a it's a misconception that most scientists are atheist there are certain scientists who i do not consider to be high quality scientists who say that human emotions are a bunch of chemical reactions and blah 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 it's all chemical reactions and physical reactions and that's all life is and that's all emotions are and that's all everything is such people <laughs> well these are not very high quality scientists okay these these people that's all i would say about them i'm not taking any names of fyi right <laughs> but yeah one comes across these people so uh the truth is we know nothing 
and there could be explanations that are way beyond science it's possible but as scientists you need to be disciplined and you need to follow the scientific method which is about physical phenomena physical objects and um and physical evidence right empirical evidence so that's what it is but you don't have to be a, be an atheist to be a scientist absolutely not okay swapnil says what kind of celestial body is arrokot okay let me show you what arrokot is so the new horizons uh, spacecraft which uh, did a flyby of the last unphotographed uh, planet pluto uh it went f- it is it is now f- going further out into into outer space and it subsequently did a flyby of a trans neptunian object called which is now called arrokots or whatever so let me show you what it looks like it's an object called a contact binary so as you can see it is an object which has two components two lobes so to say right and uh, it is classified as a contact binary so it is essentially two uh, bodies two two rocky objects that uh, somehow came into contact not violently it was not a massive violent collision it was a soft contact which happened slowly and then they just fused together or they because of gravitation they have stuck together and now it's just one object with two separate uh, distinct lobes so this is an actual image of that object arrokot also called ultima thule or whatever and this uh, image was taken by uh, new horizons by the new horizons spacecraft so it is way out there in the kuiper belt right uh, so this is the path that the new horizons spacecraft has taken and uh, it's on the way that it found it made a it did a flyby of this object and it took its photograph so this is the photograph of pluto one of the photographs of pluto that it took and its moon charon and also arrokot so that is what arrokot it arrokot is it is a trans neptunian object and it is a contact binary it's a binary object which came into existence by from the contact of two separate objects or asteroids okay pranit says what are your views on blockchain cryptocurrency and web 3.0 will it disrupt disrupt the world it will certainly disrupt the world so we had web 1.0 then we have now web 2.0 and we are going towards web 3.0 web 1.0 was a static internet you could go and visit a website but you could not interact with it these are just static pages html css and, the, and that's it that's web 1.0 so the old web then you had web 2.0 in which you had interactive websites wordpress right you could go to a website and type comments then you have social media in which you can do likes and dislikes and thumbs up and you can respond and you can uh, tweet you have facebook in which you can upload videos and you can uh, write texts and posts and all that you have google search engine and all that this is the interactive web web you have uh, online banking systems and all that you can log into your bank account and do transactions so all of this is web 2.0 the interactive web web 3.0 so the, one of the features of the interactive web 
uh, Web 2.0 is that it is centralized. All of your information is centralized and stored in servers that belong to various entities. So every time you uh, create, you have, you want to use a website, you have to create an account typically. You have to give out personal information and they store your personal information and they essentially mine your information and use it for various purposes. For They monetize it, they commercialize it. So that is the uh, one of the major salient features of Web 2.0 that your information becomes the property of big corporations, typically in Silicon Valley. That's what it is. Web 3.0 is the decentralized internet. It's based on the blockchain technology, which uh, ensures that your, your information is, is given out on a need-to-know basis. You don't have to give out all kinds of private or personal information. Only what is required for a certain transaction you have to give out. So that's the blockchain technology that underpins Web 3.0. It's still in the very nascent formative stage. You have cryptocurrency, you have certain software, softwares on built on top of that, like Ethereum, which is a software solution. Then you have uh, things like NFTs, you know, non-fungible tokens and things like that. So we are still in the very infancy of Web 3.0. And they even... Web 3.0 as of today is not quite decentralized. Even today, much of this is centralized in Silicon Valley. Yeah, much of it is owned by various uh, very wealthy people. Ethereum, for instance. Yeah, it's it's not quite decentralized. Even the Polygon network is based is built upon Ethereum, which is a certain kind of blockchain, which is not decentralized. It's actually owned by someone, so to say. So we are still in the infancy of this, but yes, eventually it will disrupt the world. And right now we are witnessing the cryptocurrency crash. There's an overall recession coming. What looks like a recession is coming right now. And cryptocurrencies have crashed. Bitcoin went below $20,000 for the first time in God knows how long. I don't know what the current status is. I'm not keeping track of it because I'm, I'm good, <laughs> thankfully. But yeah, people have lost lots of money. Uh, NFTs are now cold. It was a very hot market just a couple of months ago. Now NFTs have gone down. So yeah, we are witnessing possibly the bursting of a bubble, which may be a good thing in the long run. We we had the buzz, the the um, dot com crash in the late at the very end of the twentieth century, in the late nineteen nineties, in which you know, which was a, a much needed. Uh, change that needed that had to come in the internet so people said the internet is gone because of the dot com crash but that's not quite the case yes it's still here similarly blockchain will be there it will underpin things like smart contracts which are trustless permissionless contracts in which you don't need to trust somebody and things like that <clears throat> so it will eventually become a major thing it will disrupt the world and eventually all kinds of contracts could be done in solidity you know on blockchain and you don't need to trust anybody for, for executing such contracts house deeds sales of houses and apartments and god knows even the uh, corporate contracts lots of things could happen on the blockchain so that may be the future we may be, we may be going towards possibly so it's still early days but eventually i believe it will be it will be a major thing maybe in the next 5 to 10 years definitely
Okay, couple of questions. Cosmicality says, if colors are different wavelengths of light, then what are black and white colors? And Crazy Brain says, my question is that if we see colors and objects based on the light that is reflected from the surfaces, then how do the objects actually look? Are they black in color or white or something else? Also, if we see, for example, a flower pot, the shape and color that we interpret of that pot is the actual light reflected by it or the light that our eyes are able to receive? Yeah, these are very interesting questions, deep questions, um, somewhat philosophical to, to a certain extent. So, yeah. Colors. What are colors? So, we perceive colors when our eyes see light. So light comes in a variety of colors, right? That's how we see it. There is red light, there is brown, well, yeah. What, what light is this? Is this red? It's reddish, right? This, this uh, curtain here. You have books of all kinds of colors, yellow, blue. There is dark, something black, black and white, orange and so on. We perceive a whole range of colors through our eyes. And when there is no light, there is no color, it's just black. So first of all, let's talk about white and black. Black is the absence of light. Black is not really a color. It's an absence of light. So when you have something that is black in color, it means that the surface of that object absorbs all light and reflects nothing back. That's why it appears to us to be black. Right? For instance, uh, this, this thing here, the tip of my microphone, it appears black, which means it's made up of, of, of a substance that absorbs all of the light or most of the light and reflects almost nothing back. That's why it appears black. What is white? White is a white object, like whatever we have here, is something that reflects lights of light of all frequencies away. It absorbs almost nothing. And when you add up all the frequencies of light, all the wavelengths, you get white light. White light is essentially a mixture of all the different colors of light. So that is white and that is black. Black is something that absorbs everything and, and reflects no light. That's why it appears black. And white is the exact opposite of black, which means it is a substance or a surface that reflects everything, all different wavelengths of light. So that's why it appears white. Now, what is light? What, what is color actually? So color is what our mind perceives when it sees light of a certain wavelength or frequency. Frequency is the inverse of the wavelength, right? So when you get, when a, a certain, when light of a certain frequency comes into our eyes, our mind interprets at it as a certain color. So for instance, this is red. It has a certain distinctive frequency. And when my eye sees that, my brain or my mind interprets that as the red color. Certain frequencies appear yellow, certain appear blue, and so on. This color is an illusion. It's just something our mind makes up to help us make sense of the world. The actual world, the actual reality of the world that's around us is way more complex. It is so complex that we can't make sense of it in real time. So our mind, our brain simplifies the world for us by giving various frequencies colors. 
for instance if you have a cell phone yeah when you when you take a cell phone and you see the interface you see all the all the different apps and all that yeah you see apps and you see various readings you can do texts and you can do emails and all that you can pick up phone calls and respond to phone calls and all that inside the phone all of this data all of this information is stored and represented in the form of voltages and circuits so if you had to toggle a bunch of voltages and and fiddle with circuits in order to send an email or to send a text message you would never be able to do it because it's so complicated so what the gui of your phone does is that it gives you a very simplified representation of what the com- actual complexity is similarly our mind gives us a very simplified image of what the real world is the real world is very different from what it appears to be what we see is an illusion you know the concept of maya it is a real thing the real world is incredibly complex the real world is quantum in nature you have superpositions and decoherence happening all the time you have entanglement entanglement possibly gives rise to time who knows the real world is incredibly complicated and for us for our mind to be able to decipher that in real time would be impossible it would overload our mind and it would ensure it would ensure that we would not survive because we are just trying to make sense of what's happening and we can't respond to the world so to mitigate this problem our minds simplify the world for us and they represent all these complicated wavelengths and frequencies in terms of simple colors and certain colors don't even exist pink the pink color does not exist there is no frequency or wavelength for pink and yet we see pink it is a non spectral color it doesn't exist on the spectrum you know what is a spectrum the rainbow the vibgyor that you are taught in school yeah violet indigo blue yellow green whatever right that is the frequent that's the spectrum the color spectrum there is no pink in that and yet we perceive pink there is no white in that we perceive white there is no gray in that we perceive gray there is no brown in that but we perceive it so many of these colors that we apparently see don't even exist these are non spectral colors and that's the trick the minds our minds play on us just to ensure our survival so that simplifies the world for us so that that is uh, an insight into the weirdness of the world you know so that's how it is santosh says what are your views on immortality is it possible to achieve the same so immortality means the absence of death you never die so in in mythology in folklore etc we have things like uh, nosferatu the vampire the vampire never dies right immortal creature and of course we have a certain in indian uh, mythology so to say some people will be offended if i call it mythology we have the the uh, the immortals right like ashwatthama etc so yeah we we have the concept of immortality that some people never die and all that but is it a real thing well i have never seen anybody who's immortal none of us has seen someone who is immortal 
right? Uh, and as far as we know, from all the data that we have, from all the evidence that we have, immortality doesn't seem to be a thing. But, 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 there are, there are caveats. You go, you drill under the earth's surface, many kilometers down, you're going to bring up core samples of rock, of rock that is hundreds of millions of years old, all right? And what you find is that there are bacteria in there, in this rock that is hundreds of millions of years old. And these bacteria have been entombed in that rock for that long. And they possibly went into a dormant state. And yet they survived. And when you bring this rock out, these bacteria come back to life. So when it is when it comes to bacteria, they seem to have this property of near immortality. I mean, a hundred million years is, and if you if if an organism survives a hundred million years, that is more or less immortal. So it obviously survives in for this long in suspended animation of some kind. It's not actually evolving or, or reproducing or anything. It's just existing. It's frozen, so to say. It goes into hibernation of some kind. But it does survive. So yeah, bacteria seem to have this property of almost, of near immortality. But uh, higher beings like uh, multicellular organisms may not have it. And definitely large animals do not have the property of immortality. We have a certain lifespan uh, lifespan that's built into us. As we grow older, the, the, the telomeres at the ends of our chromosomes, they deteriorate, they shorten, and that seems to have uh, the aging of uh, the effect of aging, right? So typically, a hu- the average lifespan of a human being it depends from country to country, but typically the higher limit is about 100, 100 years, 110 maybe, yeah, that sort of thing. So, immortality doesn't seem to be a thing. Now, imagine, imagine hypothetically, you make somebody immortal, right? Is that person really going to be immortal from the identity perspective? Because even if the body is immortal, will the mind survive that long? People who get older... Uh, their cognitive faculties decline, right? They have trouble remembering events. Their mental acuity and sharpness undergoes a decline. Even someone like the president of one of the most powerful countries in the world is in clear cognitive decline. So as human beings get older, their mental faculties deteriorate. Their memory deteriorates. And it's possible that there is a certain limit to the amount of memories you can store in your mind, in your brain. And uh, if you go beyond that, you may have to uh, overwrite old memories to create new ones. So let's say you keep a person alive somehow for 200 years. And the the memory capacity, let's say, is memories of, of 100 years. So after 100 years, the person will experience new new events and he or she will form new memories. Will it not happen that these new memories will overwrite the old memories of when the person was young and a child and all that? And if the person lives 200 years, 
their entire personality may change and all the memories of the past may be gone and and only new memories be may be available so the question is will the person remain the same person or will this be a totally different person these are questions that arise when you talk about immortality right so from a biological perspective for human human beings and other animals it's definitely not possible from all the data and evidence that we have you want to believe stories and all that's your choice from the perspective of evidence there is no evidence that immortality is a thing so yeah we, it's it's as of today not possible okay Kar- karun says is there any way or possibility to convert ocean water into drinking water if yes then what is the current status of this project and who is working on this see if if something is possible it doesn't mean it's a project it doesn't necessitate that somebody is working on it so let's address the question of is it possible or not to convert ocean water into drinking water and yes it is definitely possible there's a process called desalination it's very simple <coughs> excuse me you take ocean water in a, let's say you can do it yourself at home if you have the right equipment you take a pot or a pan in which you put ocean water you boil it and whatever vapor comes out you collect it and you condense it in a different vessel right and at the end of this process all the salt and impurities will be left behind in the in the vessel in which you are heating and the distilled purified water will be collected in the other vessel that's the process of distillation <clears throat> that's uh, that's how we purify ocean water and desalinate it uh, you know how they make wine out of grapes they collect a bunch of grapes maybe 100 kilos 200 kilos they put them in a in a massive giant vessel of vat and then they ask children or or even adults to go and stomp on it either wearing boots or even barefoot that sounds very disgusting because boots are dirty and feet are also dirty right if, if you go barefoot and do all that you do that in the afternoon you're going to sweat into that it sounds terrible so what they do is they do this whole process for they do the mashing for a couple of hours stomping on it barefoot or with boots on so what what emerges after after this is that you have the grapes have been transformed into mush into mush grape juice and pulp and all that then they leave that to ferment for a certain amount of time few days months what i don't know what the time period is so it ferments in this formation of alcohol and then this alcohol the, the vessel that contains alcohol is heated the alcohol evaporates it is collected in a different vessel it is distilled and then it it is allowed to condense again and that's how you get pure alcohol without any impurities whatever so that's how they they make wine that's the simplified process similarly a similar process can be used for purifying sea water a very similar process desalination and there are multiple different ways of uh, doing this process uh, more energy efficient uh, ways are available i think israel is one of the pioneers in desalination technology so you do this and the output is uh, what they call brine which is very concentrated sea water and uh, that's something that you dump back into the ocean and it's not going to cause any real problems because it's something that comes out of, comes out of the ocean anyway so that is called desalination you can convert ocean water into drinking water through reverse osmosis or through various other things also we can do this right so yeah that's what it is 
and Israel is one of the pioneers in this in this technology. Um, and I believe they had in at some point in time offered to uh, offered this technology to India as well. So I don't know what happened, whether we took them up on this thing or not. Uh, Israel is a very dry, arid place, of course, uh, in case you know. So they would certainly need something like that to uh, for their uh, water drinking water requirements. In the case of India, we have lots of rivers and all that, so we may not need it to that extent. But it's always good to have the technology. So is there a project or not? I, I am not aware. The Israelis do it. We in India, I'm not sure if we have any desalination plants that do this thing with ocean water, but it's certainly feasible. Okay, Kanishak Chauhan says, what is cold fusion reaction? Is it really just theory or is it possible? Can it mimic conventional fusion or fission for, let's say, on a smaller scale? Okay, <clears throat> what is cold fusion? To understand what is cold fusion, let's first go into what is fusion? What is nuclear fusion? Nuclear fusion, conceptually, is when you take two atoms or nuclei of a certain element and you fuse them together. You take two nuclei, you fuse them together or maybe you shoot them at each other at very high velocities. So high, the velocity should be so high that it, it overcomes the electrostatic repulsion of the nuclei and these two nuclei, nuclei collide, they merge together and they fuse together and that gives off an enormous amount of energy. That, in brief, is what fusion is. Typically, you would do it with helium. He, uh, helium fusion, hydrogen fusion, whatever, right? So that's what you do. Uh, so to do this, you have to overcome the electrostatic repulsion of the nuclei. A nucleus, in case you know, is a positively charged object. The nucleus of an atom has a positive charge. Around it, you have electrons going around which have a negative charge. And that balances it balances out and the atom is overall electrically neutral. Okay? So, nuclei have a positive charge. Now, as you, I hope you know, like charges repel, opposite charges attract. So, a positive charge is attracted towards a negative charge. But if you have two positive charges, they repel each other. The closer you bring them together, the more they repel each other. That's the repulsive force, the repulsive electrostatic force, right? So <clears throat> to bring two nuclei together, to bring them in contact would require very high amounts of energy, which means that the two nuclei need to be shot at each other at very high speeds. So typically what you would do is you create a state of matter called a plasma, which is a very high temperature and high velocity form of matter. And because the velocities of these atoms, these, these nuclei are so high, there would be collisions between them and they would fuse together and that's how you get a fusion reaction. So the faster, the higher the velocity of a nucleus is, the hotter it is said to be. A gas is hot when its molecules are moving very fast at high velocities. A gas is cold when its molecules are moving at slow velocities. So a plasma in which you have nuclei at that are moving at very high velocities is called a hot plasma. And if you have fusion that happens in this environment, it's hot fusion. 
So typically you would use something like a tokamak. What's a tokamak? Let me show you what it is. Tokamak is a device in which you could create a fusion reaction. It's a machine. So you use magnetic confinement to, to confine the plasma within the boundary of the tokamak. This is what it looks like. All right, so use you use magnetic confinement to create to to confine the plasma and ensure that it doesn't leak out of the walls of this of this machine, and hopefully you can uh, have plasma that is energetic enough to have high velocity, high energy collisions, and you could possibly have fusion reactions through this. So that is the hope that we have, and that would be hot fusion, fusion at very high velocities and temperatures. What is cold fusion? It is a hypothetical form of fusion in which you can do this without going at high velocities and high temperatures. So let's say you have a glass of whatever it is on your tabletop. And if you can achieve fusion in that without heating it up, that is cold fusion. So in the past, some people have made claims that they've achieved cold fusion, but they, it's never been verified. They have never been able to prove it or demonstrate it. So those claims have turned out to be hoaxes, right? So that is the difference between hot fusion and cold fusion. Fusion is the holy grail. Fusion gives off way more energy than fission. And fission can be controlled in uh, nuclear reactors. Hopefully in the future, we will have fusion reactors. Fusion is clean. There is no radioactive uh, waste material that comes out of fusion. Fission reactions give off radioactive waste. You need to do something with that. You need to dispose of it in a manner that doesn't destroy the environment. It's dangerous. Fission reactions are dangerous. Fusion gives you much more energy and it's way cleaner. So that's why fusion is the future, but we should be able to achieve it. So as of today, there is absolutely no way in which we could achieve cold fusion. It's just a dream right now. Maybe in a hundred years, we may have technology, or we may have be we may have miniaturized tokamaks that are like you could actually hold in your hand. Possibly, who knows? But as of today, it's not possible. As of today, cold fusion is not possible. As of today, we have not even uh, been able to create a sustained fusion reaction on our planet. So it's a work in progress, but hopefully, it will happen sometime soon. Okay, Samheta says, if the law of conservation of matter is true, then is the Big Bang theory acceptable because that would mean that matter had been created and will be destroyed someday and that violates the universal law. Hmm. So what is the Big Bang theory? The Big Bang theory says that about 13.8 or so billion years before today, all of the matter and energy that is present in the observable and non-observable universe, all of that was concentrated in a small, infinitesimally small point. Right? And somehow all of that expanded, space-time expanded, and that was the so-called Big Bang. And that gave rise to the, to, the, to the universe that we observe around us today. So what it says is that all of this matter and energy was already there. It was concentrated in a small point, an almost infinitely dense point. So it was not created, it was already there. And in the future, if there is a big crunch, which I spoke about in the last episode, 
all of that will come back together again into another singularity. So this this uh, point in which everything was concentrated is called a singularity, right? So nothing was created, nothing was destroyed. All of the energy and matter, matter energy E equal to m c squared, all of the energy that was present in that initial singularity, which was at the birth of the Big Bang, all of that is there today. Nothing has been created, nothing has been destroyed. So matter energy, mass energy is conserved. There is no creation or destruction. So that's how it is. Nothing has been created or destroyed, and nothing has been violated. Okay, Tejas says, "Why is it said that we can never travel with speed more than the speed of light? Why is the upper limit the speed of light? Is it not a close-minded approach?" Um, <laughs> we don't believe that it's like that. It's the equations of physics that tell us. when you accelerate an object because of the effects of relativity relativistic effects the mass of that object increases and if you want to accelerate an object to a speed that is close to the speed of light you have to impart an enormous amount of energy to it and the effect is that that object becomes more and more massive and to accelerate an object to the speed of light the equations tell us that you would have to impart an infinite amount of energy to it and we don't have an infinite amount of energy anywhere and that's why it's impossible to accelerate something to the speed of light <clears throat> and more than the, than the speed of light is a whole different story and it's not physically physically possible so it's not like we have decided all of us together all the scientists that this is how it's going to be we have decided that nobody can travel to the speed of light or more than the speed of light and because we say it that's the law it's not like that we have deduced the laws of physics from experimental and observational evidence from observing the patterns of the universe and the best theory that we have is the general theory of relativity which tells us all these things and this theory has been tested hundreds of times thousands of times if the objective of these tests is to falsify the theory is to prove it wrong scientists have been trying for the past 100 years to prove this theory wrong and every single attempt has failed that's why we believe it it's not like we believe it tells us what it is what what the world is like what the universe is like and because we are not able to prove it wrong we have to accept these equations so it's not a close minded approach it's a scientific approach science is not about belief i believe i can fly so i can fly it's not like that you see so it's not a close minded approach it's the scientific method at work here and we cannot uh, i mean if people want to believe that you can travel at the speed of light fine believe it i i wish you all the best in your attempt to travel at the speed of light it won't happen right So that's how it is it's not about belief it's not about being close minded i am an open minded person you cannot be a good scientist unless you are really open minded right so that's how it is it's 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 paradoxical but that's how it is rtk says is there something left for science to discover other than the external universe and quantum mechanics and time and gravity too there's a whole lot for science left for science to discover we know nothing we know next to nothing 
we only i i i i may sound like a broken record now i've said this so many times i don't know how many times i've said this we only understand we only see 5% of the universe 95% of the universe is dark it is unseen it is un- unknown we don't understand it 95% of the universe is unknown to us there is a whole lot for us to discover and even that 5% that we know or we can see or perceive we don't even understand that very well there may be cracks appearing in the standard model of physics right now based on new experimental evidence so there's a whole lot left to discover we know of four forces who knows there may be more forces out there that we are not aware of there may be more dimensions out there that we may not be aware of compactified dimensions who knows there's a whole universe out there there could be a whole dark universe out there right now there could be a whole bunch of dark physicists wondering what the missing 5% of the universe is like who knows so there's a whole lot left to discover and that's why physics and science is so exciting exasperated farago says <laughs> if intelligent life a billion light years away so earth through a telescope would they see earth how it was a billion years ago and have no idea that it presently exist yes light is not uh, does not travel at an instantaneous speed it travels at 300000 meters per second 3 lakh meters per second right uh, so it travels a certain distance in one year and that's called that distance is called a light year so if a galaxy is a billion light years away from us and they are looking at the earth from a telescope then they will see the light that left the earth a billion years before ago so when you're looking into space when you're looking at the night sky you're looking back in time let's say you're looking at the andromeda galaxy which is about 1.5 million light years from here i believe so if you have a powerful telescope you're looking at it you're seeing it what happened 1.5 million years before today you're not seeing what's happening there right now and if you're observing a you know a, a galaxy that is 5 billion light years from here you're witnessing something that happened 5 billion years ago and similarly for them if they are looking at us and they are 1 5 billion years ago, uh, light years away they are seeing what happened here 5 billion years ago which would be the protostellar disk or the before the birth of the solar system so that's how it is so looking out into space is essentially looking back in time Akash says, "Which is your favorite and less least favorite branch of physics out of all these? Quantum physics, nuclear physics, astrophysics, mechanics, thermodynamics, electricity, magnetism, plasma physics, electrical, electronics, chemical physics, solid state physics. Why and why not? Why not? Uh, my fav- favorite branches are quantum and astrophysics. Thermodynamics also interesting. Uh, electromagnetism is also reasonably interesting. The, my my least favorite branches are electronics." electrical whatever chemical physics nuclear physics very boring and solid state physics yeah uh why why not i i am drawn towards mystery um if i had not been a physicist maybe i would have been a detective because i am drawn towards mysteries and there is nothing mysterious about electrical physics or electronics anymore there's nothing new to discover 
chemical physics is, is uh, there's no intrigue in it. There's no nothing that fascinates you. There's no no big discoveries to be made, right? Um, astrophysics is interesting because we don't know what's out there. That's fascinating. That that's something that drives your curiosity. Quantum physics, hey, hey, there's a whole lot to discover. We don't know what the world is like. What? Why are things the way they are? And what is quantum physics trying to tell us? No one's able to agree. There could be really mysterious interpretations. I mean, really strange interpretations. The many worlds interpretation and various other things. So these are the foundations of physics. This is what will drive physics forward and will give us the new next breakthroughs. Dark matter, dark energy, quantum physics. That's that's what really intrigues me. So that's why. It's because I am fascinated by mystery. I want to solve big problems. I don't want to work on something that everyone already knows about. I mean, what's left to discover in nuclear physics? What's left to discover in electronics? So that's why. Dungar Singh Chauhan says, why does Venus spin in the clockwise direction? Okay, so all, most of the uh, planets in the solar system, they have a certain direction of spin. On the Earth, the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. The same goes for Mars. The same goes for most of the planets. And they all rotate at a certain speed, different, different, different speeds. When it comes to Venus, the sun rises in the west and sets in the east. That's how it rotates, in the opposite direction. And one day, one full rotation on Venus takes nearly, nearly roughly one Earth year, close to one Earth year, more than 300 days, more than 300 Earth days. That's how slow it rotates. Why is it so? That's, that's a big mystery that nobody quite knows why it is so. So it's not just Venus that's like this. I think even Uranus or Neptune, I think it's Uranus that's like whose axis of rotation is tilted 98 degrees or so. Um, so one of the reasons why something like this would happen is because of ancient collisions with other objects. So if a planet suffers a collision with another large object, maybe another ancient planet, then the axis of rotation could be changed. It was spinning in this manner, like this, and suddenly it goes in the opposite manner because of the, because of the massive impact in whatever glancing manner which it happened. So that is one possibility. The other possibility is that uh, certain atmospheric phenomena on Venus slowly uh, changed the direction of rotation. So as we know, Venus has a very, very thick and massive atmosphere. And uh, possibly certain phenomena in the, in the atmosphere could have changed the direction of the spin of Venus. So it was spinning just like the Earth spins, but slowly, slowly, slowly the spin slowed down, stopped altogether, and then it started spinning in the opposite direction, which could possibly explain why the spin is so slow and why a full rotation takes more than 300 Earth days. That could possibly explain it. When it comes to Uranus, which is tilted in a mysterious fashion, it could be an ancient impact with some other ancient planet which no longer exists. That is a possibility. So these are the reasons why such things can happen, but we don't have the exact answers. But we have a range of answers which can explain this phenomenon. How to reach the full potential of the human brain? a JEE aspirant here. 
um i would say that you need to optimize what you do with your brain don't waste time don't waste time on things that are not important um see the human brain has a needs sleep you know that typically 8 hours of sleep so you have 16 hours of of time left so to optimize the potential of the human brain <coughs> of your brain use those 16 hours wisely uh use those 16 hours in a way that takes you forward in whatever direction you want to achieve and that's by doing time management energy management and don't not wasting your time on unnecessary and unimportant things so yeah that's how you would you would do it i mean i don't have the 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 silver bullet the panacea that you do this and everything will be your full potential will be will be unlocked i don't think i have unlocked the full potential of my brain i don't think it's possible to fully unlock and com- fully unlock and completely optimize the functioning of any person's brain but you can c- come close if you if you prioritize the most important uh, work and and tasks that you would want to do in a day <clears throat> some people make these long to do lists 15 16 things to do in one day it's not possible to work well that way uh one of the most important concepts is deep work deep work is something your brain is capable of doing maybe 3 or 4 hours in a day that is like work at a very high level of focus and concentration for that you would need to cut off distractions close the door keep all the people out make sure no one disturbs you switch off the phone or keep it in a different room and focus on what take what is going to take you forward for 3 or 4 hours that's called deep work so that is one of the core concepts of uh, of uh, of progress and uh, optimizing the way you work so it's a it's a it's a bouquet of things that you can do <clears throat> and everybody is different so you need to find what works best for you so yeah okay alpha beta says uh my question is related to my career i want to remaster my 10th 11th standard math physics chemistry show me series books you mentioned but more of academic your one minute will be very lot helpful okay you want to remaster your 10th 11th standard math physics chemistry i don't know what standard you are in now but maybe it's a couple of years before so may uh, let's say hypothetically you are in the 12th and you want to remaster 10th and 11th level math physics chemistry to do that i would suggest i mean i don't know how much time you have and all that assuming you have a lot of time assuming you have sufficient time if you want to remaster your 10th standard math go back to the 8th standard level and and fix all the deficiencies you may have there 8th standard 9th standard then come to the 10th standard level because if you want to be really good at math at a certain level you need to ensure that the foundation that comes be- before that is perfect so first go back even before the 10th standard level and sh- and ensure that everything all the all the concepts are crystal clear and you're able to solve all the problems and all that so it's it's a process and the only way to master mathematics is to solve lots and lots and lots of problems so many problems that you can do it in your sleep I remember when I was in the eleventh standard, maybe, and uh, I was I was I had come across calculus for the first time somewhere around that time. I don't know which standard it was, and uh, 
there was a time when I was kind of struggling with integration, integral calculus. So all I did was solve hundreds and hundreds of problems day in and day out. And there came a town time I solved. I was solving so many problems. I saw everything as an integration problem. So I was I was going somewhere on my bicycle. Then there was a pothole on the road. I looked at the pothole and I asked. The first thought that came to my mind was, how am I going to solve this plot pothole? Am I going to integrate it by parts? Or am I going to use some trigonometric substitution? So that's how I was seeing everything. You have to solve so many problems that it becomes second nature. So that's how we do it. There are, there are no shortcuts. The only thing I would recommend is uh, a lot of hard work. <laughs> All the best. Okay, Harsh says, Terrascope. Terrascope, turning Earth into a giant telescope. Is it a feasible technology? You saw an explanation by a scientist who was working on this concept, paper, etc. on YouTube. I believe the Terrascope concept is that you use the Earth as a giant focusing lens. So the Earth has an atmosphere that has a certain thickness. And the atmosphere refracts light. So you use this property of the atmosphere to refract light and you place a telescope or 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 a mirror or something at a certain distance away from the earth which would be typically the earth moon kind of distance where all the light is focused and that's how you can study distant objects so it has certain pros certain cons and uh, you can only see what is right directly be between you uh, be behind the earth wherever you are your instrument is located so it has certain limitations but it could give you very clear images of certain objects and so on. So that is the terrascope thing. It is something that could possibly happen in the future. It's not something that has already been implemented. It's something that can work. It's a theoretical thing as of today, but it's possible. It can be done. Avinash says, is there, if there is a multiverse, what occupies the space in between the universes? We don't know. We don't even know if there's a multiverse. If there is a multiverse, which hypothetically is possible, but we can't falsify it. We can't prove it. So it's like beyond science. But in case there's a multiverse, who knows what's between the the universes? Let's say each universe is like a ball. So what's between the, these balls? We don't know. There could be maybe nothing. Maybe there could be rainbows and unicorns and ice cream. I don't know. We have no idea of knowing. There is no answer. There is no answer that can be either proven or falsified. So, so I don't have the answer. Sorry. Nobody has the answer. Nobody at all. Okay. I think I'm done with today's questions. Let, let's take a few questions from the live, live chat. Someone is saying vacuum. I mean, how do you define vacuum? Vacuum itself exists inside space-time. Right? Think about it. Vacuum is something that exists inside space-time. And vacuum itself is not empty. Vacuum is teeming. It is teeming with particle-antiparticle pairs. Right? The quantum foam. So that's not quite what, what would be within, between universes. Vacuum itself requires space-time. But at the end, if, if our universe has an edge or an end, space-time itself ends over there. So what's beyond? That is the question, right? So take your imagination slightly ahead of this, beyond vacuum. Why is no one exploring the seas in the ocean? I think lots of people are exploring seas in the ocean. Much of these exploration is classified perhaps. You have submarines, you have deep 
deep uh, deep sea submersibles the alvin uh, submersibles and so on uh, there is plenty of exploration happening but maybe it is not something that uh, that uh, attracts a lot of media attention and maybe it's stuff that is not really spoken about because there may be interesting things that we may be discovering which have commercial applications maybe military applications but exploration is happening but not to the extent that one would want we still don't know what's be- below the surface of the ocean the oceans are deep and very mysterious we know next to nothing about it there could be unknown species hiding out there maybe dinosaurs hiding out there who knows you know maybe the great kraken is there maybe the colossal mega colossal squid is there maybe there could be a whole who knows what's out there you know so yeah it's very hard it's very hard to do undersea exploration we know more about the surface of the planet than what's under the ocean we know more about the solar system you know then what may be under the ocean in, in on our own planet so yeah there is certainly a, a significant paucity of knowledge and understanding of our undersea environment but there is some exploration that's happening but it's hard it's really hard it's tough okay let's see something else can you explain the relations between quantum theory and vedanta i don't know any see i am i am not an expert in vedanta by by any stretch of the imagination and when it comes to vedanta vedanta is the the end result of the of the vedas the vedas are not scientific texts please understand this i know this will offend people some people think all the information and knowledge in the world is is present in the vedas the vedas were a cultural and religious corpus of writing that's what the vedas were the vedas were not scientific texts there is no science in the vedas the vedas speak about indian society from god knows how many thousands years of, of years ago and beyond that i have not really studied vedanta in great depth so so from so from my limited limited perspective of very small knowledge i can say i know nothing about this and i don't see any relationship between quantum theory and vedanta or the vedas now many people who have studied the vedanta vedanta they say there is quantum this and quantum that the only person who can authoritatively speak about this is someone who has studied quantum theory in great detail and also studied the vedas and vedanta in great detail i know no such person so people who make these claims are either people who have studied only one one of these two things or or people who have studied nothing so please don't take this very seriously and please don't get offended at my frank and candid remarks i have the greatest amount of respect as you would know i hope for indian culture so it's not it's not about that right okay um let's take one or two questions uh, more how to become an astronaut in india please tell us the process and will there be enough crewed missions in india in the future you want to be an astronaut in in india you need to be an air force fighter pilot ideally a test pilot that's the process you have to get into the air force you have to apply to be a fighter pilot you have to go through the process the selection process which is very tough 
maybe one person would be admitted, would be, would be accepted perhaps. You have to become a fighter pilot. You have to prove yourself to be a top class fighter pilot. And then you may be eligible for possibly being an astronaut. So right now, I believe there's a bunch of uh, uh, fighter pilots who are being tra trained to be the first astronauts who go on the Gaganyan mission, which will happen hopefully sometime soon. So that is the process. Initially, there will be very few crewed missions in this coming decade. Eventually, in the next 20 years, 30 years maybe, you could we could have a, um, a space station of our own, maybe a moon base, maybe a Mars base. So in the next 20, 30 years, I am hopeful that there will be sufficient crewed missions. And then they would want to take people who are not necessarily fighter pilots. But as of today, you have to be a fighter pilot and a top class fighter pilot to be a candidate for being an astronaut in India. That's how I see things. That's how, that's what I understand of this. Okay, let's take um, one more question. Mm -hmm. Let's see if there is... Uh, will there be functional nuclear-powered rockets in the next 10 years? We have at least one nuclear-powered missile that we know of. It uses a small nuclear reactor that creates a ramjet effect. So it's a nuclear-powered ramjet. So that's a missile that will that can um, fly within the Earth's atmosphere. Now, what you're talking about is nuclear-powered rockets that would probably be for space launches and all that. No, it's not going to happen in the next 10 years. It's certainly feasible. It's feasible for sure. And uh, there used to be... Uh, the, the Americans had, uh, had a program that explored the possibility of, of uh, going to Mars by A-bomb, by nuclear bomb. So that would be a massive rocket with a very large mass and it would be impelled, propelled by nuclear react, nuclear explosions, atomic bombs. And they kind of showed that it could, it could work. But obviously there will be nuclear fallout in the atmosphere. And that's something you don't want, right? You don't want any more atmospheric nuclear explosions. So uh, most likely that will not happen in the near future, in the next 10 years, but maybe the, the technology certainly can work. It's certainly a, a, a viable uh, technology. It's feasible. Okay. <clears throat> One more question. If Let's see if there's something interesting. Um, ask me questions about science. People, people asking, other <laughs> today is the day of science. Why can't we dump all the plastic waste into space towards the direction of the sun? Some people say, why don't you dump all the nuclear waste into space? Solves the problem. The thing is this. Rockets can fail. Rockets can explode. You put nuclear waste on a rocket. The rocket goes up and explodes. Then what happens? All that nuclear waste will be all over the atmosphere. It will rain down all across the planet or across a, across a wide geography. Similarly, I mean, how much plastic waste, first of all, can you put on a rocket? A large rocket, let's say the GSLV, the GSLV can carry how much? It's not a large amount of weight it can carry. And 
the amount of money it it takes to place one kilo of payload into orbit is in the millions of dollars. So let's say you want to place a thousand tons of plastic into outer space. A thousand tons is is a million is a million kilos. A million kilos multiplied by a million dollars, million million, six. That's twelve zeros. That's how many dollars you would need to pay for that kind of space launch, which is prohibitively expensive, incredibly expensive. So it, that's why it's not feasible because who who will pay for that, right? It's it's not possible to pay for that much that much money for for dumping plastic into the into the, into space. So there are these considerations, financial considerations, other considerations which make it impractical to do such a thing. That's the reason why. All right, my dear friends, we are at the end of today's session. Thank you very much for all the questions. It was great fun answering them. And I will see you in the next question in in the next session, science session next week. And the other session will be tomorrow. So hope to see you there. Until then, take care and goodbye.